What is God like? If I were to ask you guys, somebody was going to answer. Good. That was rhetorical, but it's okay. Good. I appreciate people talking back to me. As 21st century Presbyterians, or if we want to call ourselves Reformed Evangelicals, I assume that if I asked you what's God like, I'd get correct answers. You'd probably say something like God is holy, God is gracious, God is sovereign, you know, good Reformed responses. Two Sundays ago, we celebrated Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday was the day when Martin Luther posted, well, it's when we remember Martin Luther posting his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, protesting some of the dogma of the medieval church. If you asked pre-Reformation Christians that same question, especially in those decades preceding Luther doing that, if you asked them, what is God like? I don't think they'd respond the way you guys would. For Luther, before he became convinced of the doctrines of grace, there was one image that loomed in his mind. The first time he served communion, he visibly shook in fear because of whom he believed God to be. And what was the image that had been seared in his mind by the actual icons and images of his day was that Christ is a judge. For many years prior to the Reformation, there was a common understanding of Jesus in particular that he was a terrifying figure, ready and waiting to cast sinners into the depths of hell as though he found glee in their destruction. Well, when Luther went back to the scriptures, he met a different God than the one he expected. He didn't meet a God there who was eager to cast sinners into eternal judgment. He didn't find a God from whom he wanted to flee in terror. He found a God of grace. A God whose love was so magnanimous, so over the top, that it almost seems shameful. So to help you get a vision of who God is, we're going to look at a very familiar passage this morning. Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. In the parable of the prodigal son, we see a picture of repentance, the son coming back to the father. We also see a picture of God that should leave us pretty shocked by who he is and what he's like. Now, I was born in 1983, which makes me an older millennial. It may astonish you that your pastor is a millennial. If you know me, it won't astonish you at all. Uh, We millennials are often maligned for our approach to parenting. The critique of our generation is usually that we're too hands-on or that we're too hands-off. You're a helicopter parent, always hovering over your children, never, never letting them skin their knee or make a mistake. Or you're a free-range parent who uh, you just you know, let your kids do whatever they want without any supervision. These are the two parent categories that we millennial parents are either trying to dodge or we just embrace it rebelliously and move on with our lives. Is that too close to home? Can we not talk about millennials? All right, whatever. In the story of the prodigal son, the father represents God. And when we look at his parenting, he seems like a mess. 
The decisions that he makes in regard to his son, the way that he parents this boy is just a disaster. I've never met a millennial parent as shamelessly sloppy in their parenting than how God is depicted here. So what is God like? According to this parable, he's not the raging despot of the medieval church. No, how God acts towards sinners is embarrassing. Unbelievable. Even shameful, one might say. And what we learn from this parable is that the call to repent comes from a shamelessly doting father, not from a raging despot. Let's look at verses 11 and 12 in our parable. Jesus said, that's the he that's being referred to here. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. It only takes two verses for Jesus' depiction of God to start sounding subversive and bizarre. Because what does this father do when his rebellious, disrespectful, punk son comes and asks for his half of the inheritance? The son comes to the dad and basically says, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have half your, your cash and property. But since you aren't dead, can I just go ahead and get it now? How would most fathers respond to this kind of request? Y'all can respond to that one if you want. That's not what he does. He doesn't respond with anger, with surprise. He doesn't punch him in the mouth. What does he do? Just gives it to him. Why? Why does this father... Give all this property to his son. He knows what this son's going to do with the money, but he gives it anyway. Here's the first blank in your worship guide. Against all reason and propriety, God gives his children the freedom to sin. He could be accused of being a free-range God. Maybe this has never occurred to you before, so let's think about it. When you become a Christian, when you believe in Jesus and you're adopted into God's family, why are you still able to sin after that point? God could have arranged things differently. He could have removed our flesh altogether and locked us into being able only to obey him, only to do what's right, but he didn't do that. Why not? Why this free-range approach? Why give his children the ongoing freedom to sin? I think our parable helps answer that question. Look at verses 13 and 14. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Shocker. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So the younger son takes his inheritance to the big city, and he blows it on reckless living. All right? Of course, that's what he does. But notice what happens as a result of his sin. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, unclean animals. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. 
But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? So the young man takes advantage of his father's grace. He took advantage of this freedom to sin. And in time, he begins to lose his taste for his sin. He sees where his sin has led him. And finally, in verse 17, he comes to his senses. And what does he say? How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? This young man's sin led him to appreciate his father more. Here's your next blank. Somehow under the sovereign guidance of God, our sin and the suffering it causes teaches us to treasure God more. So God gives us the freedom to sin. And somehow through it, he teaches us to treasure him more than we treasure our sin. Now, we just saw the story of Solomon. This process may take us to the end of our rope, may take us to rock bottom. But if we are his children, he ultimately leads us to treasure Christ more than we treasure our sin. Is this not a strange notion? Anytime you talk about God's sovereignty and human freedom, we find mystery. We find paradox. But to what ends? Mysteries and paradoxes in Scripture are not always there to be figured out, to be understood or debunked. No, the primary purpose of these mysteries in Scripture is to call us to worship. To see something here that is so far above us and beyond our understanding that we can't help but worship the one who made it this way. So how should this truth call us to worship? This truth that God gives us the freedom to sin so that we treasure him more. I mean, doesn't that confuse and confound you a little bit? Doesn't that take your your understanding of God and kind of turn it on its head? This is no raging despot. This is no angry king. This God is strange in the way that he relates to us. And though some might accuse him of being a free-range God who gives too much freedom to his children, there is something astonishing and beautiful in his character. But let me make a qualification. It's your next blank. Though God may seem free-range, he always limits our freedom lest we destroy ourselves with sin. Remember the stories about repentance. Time and time again in Scripture, even recently in the life of Solomon, we've seen how God calls his children back. Though he gives us remarkable freedom, even the freedom to sin, there's always a limit. He will never let us go so far that we destroy ourselves utterly. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says this, Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. This story is about repentance. The son, in going back to his father from the big city, this is a picture of repentance. So God gives us the freedom to sin. He allows us to experience sin's pleasure that leads to pain. And to what end? That we would be zealous to repent. So that we would run home all the more quickly. So God's approach and attitude toward us and our sin, it's shocking, it's strange. It's hardly the angry despot that Luther assumed him to be. God is no angry despot, but a shamelessly doting father. He extends so much grace to us that we even have the freedom to sin. 
That's not the only shameless characteristic of God that we see in this parable. Here's your next blank. In a manner seemingly unfit for the king and creator of existence, God waits on the edge of his throne looking eagerly for his foolish, ruined, sinful children to come home. He could be accused of being a helicopter God. Let's look at verses 17 through 20. But when the son came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Preachers and commentators have talked for years. One of the quotes in the worship guide has this. A rich nobleman in the first century would never be caught dead running outside. It just wasn't done for a host of reasons. It was a shameful act. But the shame of what he does here, uh, I think, is less in the running and more in the why he's running. Look at verse 20 again. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. When it says that the father kisses the son, a more literal reading of the verb would be that he kissed him again and again, or he kissed him all over his face. For some reason, it's almost like our English translations are are, are nervous about making God look too shameful. But look at the contrast between the father and the son. The father is the one running in the story, not the son. The father is the one shaming himself, not the son who is shameful. So as the the son is off sowing his wild oats, what's the father doing? He's daily going out and watching the horizon, longing for his son to come home. This might be worse than helicopter parenting. This is like letting yourself get walked all over. You give away the inheritance and then constantly wait for your son to come back home. Move on with your life, man. And yet, what is Jesus teaching us about himself, about his heavenly father and the Holy Spirit? Here's your next blank. The nature of grace is that it regularly gets taken advantage of, and yet God gives it again and again, and again. Trisha, you burning up over there, darling? You can move. It, don't, it doesn't bother me. Those li- those, when, t- when the time change happens, there are seats that just get oppressively hot over there. I'm warm right now, too, so I, I saw you there. I, I, we're, we're together up here. All right, there, here's the blank that I just totally goobered up. The nature of grace is that it regularly gets taken advantage of, and yet God gives it again and again and again. When the father welcomes his son home, what do you expect him to do? You expect him to say, oh, wait a second. Before you take one more step toward me, we've got to iron out how this relationship is going to function. He, and then he lays out requirements for how to rejoin the family. We expect him to say, no, 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 no. I'm not trusting you again. Fool me once, shame on me. But that's not what he does. The father shamelessly runs toward his son, embraces him, and kisses him all over. This is grace. It was grace to give him the inheritance in the first place, to give him that freedom. But this is grace again. Grace upon grace upon grace. So let me ask you, 
when any person repents. When they come to God mired in their sin and their shame and their guilt, when they come to God, what do they see in His face? When they've made an absolute disaster of their lives because they've taken advantage of the freedom God gave them, what do they find when they come back to God? They don't find a disappointed and angry despot, a jilted king ready to smite the treasonous sinner. No. They find a shamefully doting father. Here's your next blank. When you look at the mess you've made of things, you may hesitate. You may think that God will not receive a sinner like you, and yet God is sitting on the edge of heaven waiting for you to come home. But why? On what grounds? It's not because of you. It's because of the perfect son, Jesus Christ. Jesus traded himself on the cross for you. Because of him, any sinner will be received, forgiven, and shown the Father's love. This is the promise that's been extended to you. Hold your finger in Luke 15 and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. You can stretch a parable beyond what's appropriate. So I want to show you that the point I'm making is not only here. When you think about repentance, it's not usually an exciting term. You know, repentance usually conjures up feelings of shame, guilt, and fear. You, you, when, when somebody says repent is an imperative, you expect them to be hitting their fist down or something. People dread coming to God confessing their sins and asking to be restored to him. The son didn't come out of fear, did he? He didn't come because he thought he was going to be smitten for his sin. That's not the reason he came back home. He came back home because he knew when he got home that there were remarkable, abundant blessings for him, right? Romans chapter 2, let's look at verses 1 through 4. Paul says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the, the, the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness... And forbearance, it's forgiveness and patience, not knowing that God's what? Kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So let's be clear about what Paul says in these four verses. Does sin deserve judgment? Yes, he says that very, very clearly. Will sinners be judged if they do not repent? Yes, he says that clearly too. And to whom does Paul speak very harshly in this text? Particularly, sinners who judge others, who self-righteously condemn other people for the very things that they're doing. But in the middle of this very heavy diatribe, Paul makes this remarkable statement that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. It's not the screams of an angry king 
that call us to repent. No. It's the Father's kindness, even to servants, that calls us home. The call to repent comes from a shamefully doting father, not a raging despot. It's not fear of judgment that calls a person to repent. Many of us are very confused about that. Frankly, most of us are confused about what repentance is in the first place. If I were to ask you to define repentance, you don't, don't raise your hand. If I were to ask you to, to, to define repentance, how many of us would say, repentance is feeling sorry for my sins and confessing them? Or others might say, repentance is turning away from my sins. Or maybe we'd say, repentance is stopping my sin and doing what's right. I hear Christians say this stuff all the time when I talk to them about repentance. But all those definitions are immensely deficient, if not completely wrong. We see repentance in this parable. And what is it? What is repentance? Here's your next blank. What is repentance? Repentance is rejecting the satisfaction of sin for the satisfaction of knowing God through the work of Jesus. Why does the son leave the big city and his sin behind? Because he remembers how good his father is even to his servants. The son experienced the pleasures of sin and found them lacking. And he knows that what his father offers is much, much better. Repentance happens when we get sick of our sin. And we just don't find it satisfying anymore. We see what it's doing to our lives. We see what it's doing to the people we love. We've been intoxicated and sickened by it enough times to realize that it's hollow. To realize we've been deceived and even been pointing ourselves toward destruction. And then we remember what God offers us because of the work of Jesus. In Christ, you can know God's love and affection. In Christ, you can know the Father's approval and joy. In Christ, friends, you can have rest and peace and joy in your life that endures all things, good times and bad. In Christ, we have everything we need. We can be starving to death and still have everything we need in Christ. Repenting is not turning from bad works to good works. Repenting is not feeling bad and confessing our sins. No, repentance is running home, knowing what God will be like when we get there. So we flee from our sin and its satisfaction. We flee from our righteousness, our vain attempts at fixing ourselves and satisfying ourselves. We flee to God because of the work of Jesus. He's seated on the edge of heaven waiting for you to return so that he can heap his grace upon you. He's like a helicopter parent who's lost his child on the playground. He's desperately, shamelessly seeking for you to come back home. The call to repent comes from a shamelessly doting father, not a raging despot. So if you repent, if you go back home, what will happen? How will God respond? Here's your next blank. In a spirit so forgiving that it seems unjust, God celebrates. God celebrates the return of his foolish, ruined, sinful children. He could be accused of being a pushover God. Now, you already know this because we read it earlier. The father throws a party for his returned sinful son. But this theme of God throwing a party, 
of celebrating and rejoicing over one repentant person, that's an overarching theme in this whole chapter. So we're actually going to back up 10 verses to the beginning of the chapter, and we're going to read the first two uh, parables that Jesus gives, kind of warming up the crowd for this uh, third one. So go back to the beginning of chapter 15 in Luke, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? When she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I've found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's fascinating how Jesus describes the joy in heaven. You may not have seen it. He doesn't say that God celebrates. Instead, what does he say? Look at verses 7 and 10. Verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So he just says there will be joy in heaven. Then in verse 10... The, the, the picture gets a little more complex. Verse 10 says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So there's joy in heaven. There's joy before the angels of God. Both of these seem to be a euphemism for God rejoicing. If there, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God, well, that would be God rejoicing. Why doesn't Jesus just come out and say God's rejoicing? Because it'd be shocking to these people. They're ticked off that Jesus is eating with sinners already. So for him to just come out and say, God celebrates these people when they come home, it'd blow their mind. So he's warming them up with these earlier parables. But then he comes in with a crown jewel, this beautiful parable of the prodigal son. And the joy of the father over the son is a picture of God's joy over the repenting sinner. It is so over the top. It is so offensive and crazy that it's way beyond if he just said God celebrates over a repenting sinner. So let's look at it, verses 21 through 32. 21. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatten calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound but he was angry and refused to go in His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? He said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Here's your next blank. When any sinner repents, God celebrates and all his household with him. The older son in this story is a picture of the judgmental religious types from the beginning of the chapter who are mad that Jesus is eating with sinners. The older brother is like the judgmental people that Paul is talking to in Romans chapter 2 who think that they are deserving of God's love while these depraved, disastrous sinners like the younger brother don't deserve that love. The reality is that none of us deserve God's love. (laughs) And yet he gives it anyway. When any sinner repents, God's response, God's response is instant, overwhelming celebration. Two Sundays ago, I wish she was in here, B. Bowling professed her faith in Jesus. And when she did, it set off a party in heaven. This is God's great joy. Not when sinners reform themselves, but when sinners flee from their sin to him, when they simply come home. I read this text the day after my son Liam made his profession of faith. And I realized I had not adequately celebrated what God was doing in his life. It was a Sunday when he made his profession of faith and took communion for the first time, and I'm working on Sunday. I had stuff going on that afternoon. It it happened, and we kind of moved on, and the next morning I opened the scriptures, and this was the text I was reading, and I've never, I love this text. I've read it a zillion times uh, in depth, and it cut me to the core that there was a party going on in heaven, and I didn't participate in it. So you know what I did? I did like what this lady did who found the coin. I started calling people. I'm having a party tomorrow night at my house. Can you come? And so we had some of his little friends come over and uh, we, we threw a little party and we celebrated Jesus for what he was doing. This is God's great joy when sinners come home. But that's not our ordinary expectation, is it? No. Here's your next blank. Our inclination is to bargain with God or to do something to get back in his good graces, because we expect him to be an angry despot. In fact, that's what the younger son intended to do. Did y'all see that earlier in the text, verses 18 and 19? It says, he says, I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So this is his plan. The son remembers the love and provision available back home. He just don't think his father will take him back, so he comes up with a scheme. Since he can't be his son anymore, maybe he can come back and work as a slave. Maybe he can earn his way into the household through hard work. But the son can't even finish his proposal to the father. You've probably seen this before in verse 20. The father cuts him off. Look at verse 20. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. He's getting his little spiel out. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father cuts him off. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The father cuts him off before he can even try to make a deal. Why? Because the father's just glad to have his son home. He's overjoyed. And this is how God feels toward any sinner who repents. If you come to God in repentance, if you believe that what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection, if you believe that has paved the way for you to go back to God, to be forgiven by God, to be loved by God, to be included by God, there's no need for bargaining, friend. There's no place for your works. They're not accepted here. Here's your next blank. The truth is, if you trust Jesus... You have nothing left to do or achieve. Nothing. Despite your sin and your history, if you trust Jesus, you are a child of God and God delights in you. So the call to repent comes from a shamelessly doting father, not a raging despot. And yet how many times have we come to God, I know I've done it, like a dog with my tail tucked between my legs, afraid of how he's going to respond to this stinking, wretched sinner like me. How many times we we come to God making promises about what we will or won't do in an effort to to, to move God's unmovable will. God's not the miser that we imagine him to be. His arms are wide open. He is waiting and ready to receive you, to lavish the provision of his household on you. The call to repent comes from a shamelessly doting father, not a raging despot. So sinners, what are you waiting for? Repent. When we say repent, it should immediately bring a smile to our faces. The idea of repentance brings baggage along with it. I mean, what does the word conjure up in your mind? Maybe apocalyptic street preachers holding signs that say repent. Maybe the the invitation to repent reminds you of the judgmental looks and harsh words of a family member or one-time friend. For religious folks, repentance can become so commonplace in our thinking and talk, we have no visceral reaction of all, and not because we're seasoned practitioners of repentance, but because we think of repentance as, oh, it's something we do in the middle of church on Sunday morning. It doesn't matter where you come from, repentance has its baggage. But the call to repent comes from a shamelessly doting father, not a raging despot. It comes from a God whose love for his people is so undeserved, so magnificent, so huge that it seems shameful. God comes off seeming like the kinds of parents we would never want to be accused of being. And yet that's who he is. So are you hesitant to repent? Are you fearful of how God will respond? Are you trying to fix yourself before you come to him? Don't wait. Join Luther in fleeing from your sin and its satisfaction to knowing this shamelessly doting father. Just come home, sinner. Come home. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this magnificent story that you wrote for us that unveils the heart of your father. It also reveals, Lord, your heart toward the sinners you were sitting at the table with as you told the story. It reveals the heart of your Holy Spirit who would come and, and, and live in and with us. Lord, we praise you for your love. Lord, I want to pray for the folks who are here today who hesitate 
to openly confess their sin to you, who hesitate to believe that they could be loved this radically by you, that they could be accepted this radically because of the work of Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are here who, though they trust Jesus, still feel like there's more they need to do to make themselves right. Lord, teach us to repent, to simply come home and to find rest in what Christ has done, to believe the promise that everything that we need has been done in Christ and in that to find our peace, our rest, our joy, our purpose, everything that we need. Teach us, O God, to repent. And we pray that your love would overwhelm us. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.